Bits and Bricks. Welcome to Bits and Bricks, a podcast about all things Lego games. I'm Ethan Vincent. And I'm Brian Crescenti. Together, we look back at the rich 25-year history of Lego games, chat with early developers and seasoned studios who have all tackled the creation of video games for one of the most popular and respected toy companies in the world, the Lego Group. It all started with a little bit of extra wood, a love of toys, and an unbreakable will to succeed. Ole Kirk Christiansen founded his little toy company in 1932, coming up with its name by combining the first two letters from the Danish words play, leg, and well, god. Initially, Ole, a master carpenter, focused on creating wooden toys. There's, of course, the signature wooden duck that you could pull by a string, but also other toys like piggy banks, trucks, and yo-yos. In 1947, he decided to start experimenting with plastic toys, including a truck that could be taken apart and reassembled. But it wasn't until 1949 that he and his son Gottfried started selling automatic binding bricks. Yeah, you know, if you're interested in the Lego Group's wonderful history, you should check out the Lego story, How It All Started, which is this animated film that was created by the Lego Group back in 2012 to celebrate the company's 80th anniversary. Lego. As you can see, Ole himself ended up finding a very suitable name. But what he didn't know was that in Latin, the word Lego means I put together. The name Lego was well received. There's also this great outtakes video. You can see both on the Lego Group's official YouTube channel. System? Hmm. There isn't any system. What in the world are you doing, Gottfried? There isn't any system. The toys need an idea and a system built around it. I want to put system into play. Children have only been offered ready-made solutions. They need something different that will strengthen their imagination and creativity. So you're trying to put Lego into a system? Interesting. Both videos include Ole and Gottfried, as well as Gottfried's son, Kelt Kirk Christiansen, who would go on to run the Lego Group after his father. It was under Kelt's leadership that the Lego Group introduced the idea of themes, created the minifigure, and started their lucrative licensing property business that has included the likes of Star Wars, Marvel, and Disney. But perhaps most importantly, at least for our podcast, it was Kelt who so enthusiastically embraced emerging technology and pushed innovation at the company into the digital age. During his tenure, the company launched Lego.com, Mindstorms, and SPU Darwin, which we had a whole episode about. The first video games also launched under Kelt's leadership. That's right. He had a deep impact on the current face of the Lego group, which is why we're so happy to have him on this episode of the podcast. We'll also be chatting with Jorn V. Nudstrop, former CEO of the Lego group, who currently serves as the executive chairman of the Lego brand group. So in this episode of Bits and Bricks, we'll be focusing on the company's history with digital play and video games. And in our previous episode, we focused more on the here, now, and the future, including interviews with the company's current CEO, the chief product and marketing officer, and the head of LEGO Games. So make sure you give that a listen, too. Jorn V. Nudstrop has a, an interesting perspective on the company. Both through his time running the Lego Group as its CEO from 2004 to 2016, but also now as the executive chairman of Lego Brand Group, where he focuses on the truly long-term strategic direction of the brand and supports the owner family in their active and engaged ownership of the Lego brand. So, Yarnvi, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. I, I wanted to ask you straight out of the gate here, um, how did you view the Lego Group when you joined the company, and how did that compare to the state of the company when you stepped away as CEO? Yeah, so it was an amazing company to join. It was, of course, also my childhood passion, and I had a very uh, unstructured and unusual interview process, and that's how everything continued. It was a very informal, very happy company. It was clearly struggling, but the passion was high and energy was really good. So it was very surprising in that way. And then, of course, I was just completely fascinated be, being surrounded by my childhood passion, and I spent a lot of time just exploring that. I was lucky that I was put into a position that sort of took me 360 degrees around the full spectrum of the company. 
But I would say, if I were to sort of say what critical observations emerged through dialogues with many uh, great people, I would say there are sort of three things that struck me and that I think changed over the years uh, during during the time that I was part of the leadership. And, and that was the company had a identity split. There were those who were very passionate about the purpose and the legal idea. And then there were the so-called realists who were very focused on the commercials and making the company successful in, in traditional terms. Then another split was that the companies, uh, there was really very little understanding of how to optimize operations and in particular, how it links into product development and marketing. So it was a, a disjointed, even to a degree, I would say a dysfunctional uh, organization and company. And finally, it was a company that was trying to do way too much. So often people will say a company runs out of cash and it dies in a way from starvation. But this company was dying from indigestion. It had taken on too much. And, you know, for me, the epiphany was I, I was on a plane from Boston to Amsterdam and I was lucky to sit next to a person called Chris Sook who has written books on this subject. One of them is actually called Profit from the Core. So he was very much focused on what is the core of a, of a business and a company, including its core purpose. And we spoke the whole night on that plane from Boston to Amsterdam. And he has a notion in his book that says a company can do something new once every five years if it's really going to be successful doing that. And and when we when we sort of uh, went off the plane in Amsterdam early in the morning, he said to me, "I know what you did. You read my book upside down. Uh, you you did five new things once every year. You know those things may actually be great ideas, but you probably did too many at the same time." So I think what hopefully was a little bit different uh, 10, 15 years later was that the company was much better aligned between the production of products and the marketing and selling and development of products. And I think the company was much more purpose and, you know, being disciplined on commercials and operational success, not that identity split. Its self-identity was a lot clearer. And then it had decided that the company couldn't really be the world's best at a ton of different things. So it no longer ran theme parks, it no longer produced movies and and content itself. And it, importantly for this conversation, had stopped in a major way attempting to be a major, uh, let's say, producer of video games. And I'm sure we'll explore that a lot more in this conversation. Yes, that kind of leads straight into my next question. Um, What role did you see digital play and video games having inside the company when you started with the Lego Group? And how did that evolve over your tenure as CEO? Yeah, so I joined, of course, in September 2001. And so I was very aware of Lego Island and it was still on the market and it was a great game. And more thoroughly, I was very aware of Mindstorms, which was a quite new offering at the time Mm -hmm. and was probably not living up to our expectations, but was still an extraordinary product. And I remember having many conversations with Keld about that programming, making algorithms and coding something I have done since my my early youth, is really also like building with Lego bricks. There's a systematic system uh, in which you can be endlessly creative. So, so we actually said making algorithms, coding algorithms, is just like building with Lego bricks. Uh, it's a language. And so we felt that Mindstorms and coding was the closest you came to actually playing digitally with Lego bricks. And that, of course, led to discussions that then you don't need studs and tubes, but what then do you need to actually really live the Lego idea digitally? And I still think that's true, but I think it also led us onto a path whereby it became a little bit sometimes esoteric from the point of view of the end user, because in some sense, stacking simple one-by-one blocks as you do in Minecraft is also, in a way, coding and uh, programming behaviors. Mm -hmm. But it's incredibly simple, even compared to something like Scratch, which we have been very close to all the years in its development, and, and is a great example of building code. But I think that's where we were. And then, of course, we were also, in 2003 and 4 very focused on the broken core. Because due to this set of issues I described earlier that I think plagued the company when I joined it, the core was actually super dysfunctional and highly unsuccessful and unprofitable also and very inconsistent in its performance. 
So we completely doubled down on saving the very essence of the company, which of course is the Lego brick and the building system, and everything else which was an adjacency, whether it was producing movies uh, or books or other lifestyle products or video games or theme parks, went on sale or to be licensed out and hopefully find a home with somebody who would be among the world's best doing that and have a relationship with us. And that led to the decision to spin off uh, Lego Media or, or Lego, uh, Lego Video Games, uh, which eventually, as you of course are fully aware, became TT and, and now uh, since many years Warner Brothers. And I, I think there was a consequence of that um, very rigorous focus on what can we be the best at doing and what should somebody else do. It was a very difficult decision and I think also a decision that unfortunately was biased by having a management team, not least including myself, and a board of directors that actually knew relatively little about this massive market of, of video gaming. And, you know, it's interesting to contrast how we handled the Legoland situation versus the Lego video games, where with Legoland we had, and this was very much also driven by Kjeld as a family owner, we took an ownership stake, so we had equity in the new company that uh, went on to run Legoland, and we had a strong license agreement. With what became TT, I think we from the beginning should have equally taken an equity stake to be able to co-invest and co-influence and, and be part of that journey while recognizing that we might not be the best operators of that company. Well, let's jump right into some of these games. Uh, obviously, you hinted at the success of Lego Star Wars, uh, the video game. How has that impacted the Lego group's you know, relationship with video games and, and the company in general? So I think before the launch of Lego Star Wars, what became TT Games was really a licensed partner. We thought it important to still have some titles out there, but it was not something we spoke a lot about. It was just another licensing relationship. Mm-hmm. The Lego Star Wars video game, I think, completely transformed that. And that was because it was just, I mean, you watch the trailer, you do the first kind of, it, it was just amazing. And I think it almost introduced a new genre within the video console video game segment. And that, of course, really opened our eyes. But of course, also in our commercial organization, people sort of, really sort of started looking at the revenues and said, wait, wait a minute, this, <laughs> this is actually reaching a very, very significant audience. And so I think for me personally, it was kind of scary to think about some of the very key people behind the game were actually former Lego staff. So they were liberated by being in a different context, but it was not that the person couldn't be employed by the company. I thought that was deeply fascinating and something I've kept reflecting on in, in my 20 years here across a number of other segments of our business, uh, which we can perhaps come back to. But yeah. eventually reaching some 7 million consumers. We, we did some research, I remember, and I think it was in Scandinavia, which obviously is a, a home market to the Lego brand. And we learned that a four-year-old child's first introduction to Lego play was through the video game, not the physical bricks. Wow. When that data point landed on my table, everything changed with regards to our view on TT Games and the importance of that relationship. And of course, as you know, we went on a roll with some amazing games, Harry Potter, indie, Marvel. And for me personally, I was lucky. I know you in earlier episodes have talked about your children's gameplay. Yeah. I, I'm the father of four kids and uh, between the, the six years between the four of them, two girls, two boys. And back in, in 2005, my oldest was four years old and the youngest wasn't even born. So they, they grew up on this and we have spent endless hours playing all of these games. And, and so it, of course, also at a personal level, just really opened my eyes. And also, I have some kids who are deep Lego builders to this very day where they're sort of in, in their late teens. Mm-hmm. But some of them weren't so much into physical Lego play. Yeah. But then they were deeply into uh, Lego video play. I find that moment really interesting you talked about. Do you kind of remember when that was, that you you got that data in and it, it changed the way you thought about video games on, on a real corporate level? 
Yes, I think that was late 2006. Mm -hmm. So it took a while before we sort of really uh, understood the deeper impact. And that was an interesting moment also, because as you know, Lego Universe really started in 05, which was great because we were in the midst of a survival crisis, but there were still a few people who had energy to to think about Lego Universe. But what happened uh, by the end of 2006 was that a new management team was formed, including Lisbeth Walter. Mm -hmm. And she and her colleague, Matt Snipper, sort of together owned, I think what we call seven growth drivers. So this was like a highly uh, secret effort to be ready the day the company had fully come out of its transformation to be a much more healthy business. Uh, We projected that to be 2009. Uh, By 2008, we couldn't hold back the wild horses and we started growing again. But we we spent four years uh, sort of getting into shape before we unleashed organic growth again. And during that time, they worked on things that became themes like Lego Power Miners and eventually Ninjago, Lego Friends, uh, the Lego Movie, Um, you know, the expansion of Lego brand retail, the reconfiguration of relationship with Legoland, betting on Lego education, and then also Lego universe. And all of those things were therefore in the pipeline over a three to four year horizon and only sort of really hit the public in the next decade after 2010. I'm going to dive right into asking you about Lego Universe. And um, for me, maybe the first question here is how significant an effort was Lego Universe to the Lego group as a whole? And why did the company invest so much into a single video game project at that time? Yeah, it it was a very, very significant effort. And it started around 05 and 06. And I think we had a brilliant team, they were a little bit outsiders in the innovation organization around Lisbeth Walder, Henrik Lorenzen, and importantly, Mark Hansen. And I think they were sort of really diving deep into the world of gaming and forming a vision Mm -hmm. for the Lego brand. And I think very much aligned with this idea of creating community, creating uh, coding opportunities, you know, unfolding imagination. So they wanted to do something that added a bit more proximity to the fundamental idea of the Lego brand than the TT Games Mm -hmm. had done so far. And I think, therefore, it was a very fundamental exploration for us. And as you know, it probably also led us to have possibly too many ambitions for one single game as it evolved over the next five years. And that's one of the things that was apparent in those five years of development. Um, you know, it was kept alive for less than two years. And what do you think should have been done differently in the game's creation? Or, or what do you think was the right decision? Or was it the right decision to cancel the game? How do you look at it now, kind of in hindsight? Yeah. So a couple of things on that. I mean, what, one of the things that I would say almost to this day plagues us a little bit in our culture is we launch physical products when they come out, they're perfect. We're world famous for our quality. And of course, a physical product in the hand of consumer, you can't take back and say, wait a minute, I'm sending you a new release of that product. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. It's gone. Yeah. But we got that all wrong in digital, right? I mean, we should have launched a much less well-spec game, a much less perfect game, and then kept iterating on it because only through experimentation would we have figured out really what works? And that's, of course, also because this development, as you know much more about than I do, happened at a time where we started shifting from, you know, physical selling boxes with games in them to actually web enabling and distributing online and so on. Mm -hmm. And so there was some technology shifts that made this harder for us to realize. But with hindsight we would have been better off launching something much simpler that we could have learned from and then kept iterating on. And also, quite frankly, at lower cost of development, but also lower cost of moderation and maintenance, Mm -hmm. and thereby, you know, kept evolving a fundamental idea rather than trying to push for this perfect final idea that would go on to live. Um, And I think there were issues in this, what I call, being the writer of the novel on which the movie is based. Mm -hmm. I don't think we were sufficiently, and and, you know, everybody did 
with the best intentions and I'm the worst of all, so I'm not blaming anybody. But we should probably have stepped a few more steps away and let Scott and the team, Ryan and so on, to basically say, hey, Lego Group, lean on us. We know how to do games. You know how to do Lego play. We listen to you, but we're going to do this. And then we hope you like it when it comes out. And that's actually something we did for the Lego movie. There are so many people who've asked me, what degree of control did you have with Lord and Miller and Warner Brothers and Lynn Pictures in terms of the script and storyline for the Lego movie? And eventually we had none. Yeah, They took all the risk, but they spent just as much time with children and Lego fans as NetDevil did. So they immersed themselves in the Lego brand. But I think my mistake in the development, and this is my mistake in the development of Lego Universe, is we crossed that red line and went into having all sorts of opinions about what the game should look like. And because NetDevil was not so much an independent studio, they were a supplier on a, we paid them for their production for us. We took charge of something that I think we weren't qualified to take charge of, which was what the game should really be designed as and look like. We, we should have kept away a little bit more from that, which of course is super difficult. But I think that was a crucial mistake in the development. Then I think uh, when it hit the market, there were a lot of things that made it difficult. But also, I mean, I keep hearing from people and I've sat down with the founders of Minecraft and the founders of Roblox and they both said to me, oh, I loved Lego Universe. (laughs) And I think many people did and certainly my kids also. Yeah. But... It is true that people say Lego Group doesn't have a lot of patience for what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But I'd also say there were really strong signals that actually this wasn't the killer product that it needed to be with the degree of investment and moderation we had put behind it. And so I continue to believe that just carrying on with a almost unaltered product and hoping three more years, I don't think would have been the right way to spend our resources. Mm -hmm. What I think was a mistake, and this is again 100% my accountability, was shutting down NetDevil. I I wish uh, the board and the owners and management had gotten together and said, we can easily afford this. Let's invest, you know, it wouldn't be much more than $50 million, maybe even less than that. And keep this alive and keep iterating on ideas because we have a long-term destiny in digital play and NetDevil understands us as well as anybody else. The product isn't right, but then let's think about what the next product looks like. And I think we washed out a lot of hard-earned capabilities in completely closing down. And I view that as one of my biggest mistakes, accepting that that happened. And the reason why we were accepting it were that we were just incredibly busy running everything else, which was on fire and and highly successful. But that's not an excuse. Uh, We we should have preserved this and, and kept investing in it and see what would come next a couple of years later. Well, I appreciate your honesty. Again, this is to me very fascinating, this transparency and just being so open about your, you know, your perception of those those days, having also visited NetDevil and seen yeah. their brick collection and talked to the group. I mean, you knew all these people very personal as well. Yeah. You talked about that dichotomy between, you know, the Lego group seeing, you know, maybe even the motto of only the best is good enough and having these very high standards of success and quality. And then on the other hand, letting others kind of freely reign. And I guess the trend I'm seeing is that I'm finding that a lot of external groups are grasping the Lego DNA a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. And it, it has to do with the fact that I think they grew up playing uh, with Lego bricks, but also with Lego video games. And it's inherently built into. And that is where the Lego group, of course, and the Lego brand group did an amazing job infusing all elements of play with that. And I I feel that that is the great contribution. So my question, which is, of course, a very long question that I just did, I apologize for that. How do you see the future of the Lego DNA and kind of the future of the Lego language influencing digital play? And how will that relationship continue? No, I think you, I mean, thank you for that. And, And it was long, but it was so valid what you said. And what I feel is that the Lego idea has been validated 
in the digital world, a little bit in part to Lego Universe and the success of TT Games, but very much by the success of Minecraft, of various coding plays, and of course with that, Roblox. Mm -hmm. And now even something like Fortnite Creative. I think what we're seeing is that there is no doubt that the Lego brand and its idea are relevant in a digital age and is one of those things, just like in the physical world, that will be, I think, with human beings forever. I mean, I think it's a very fundamental way of playing is to make things that you can call your own and you can unfold your creativity and imagination within a set system of tools. And so I feel strongly validated in that the brand has a role. It, It kind of reminds me back in 03 and 04 and the company was almost going bankrupt or it actually probably did but was saved. Some people said to me, will the Lego brand survive? And I said, I have no doubt the Lego brand will survive. The only question on my mind is who's in management and who owns the company? Mm -hmm. Because I think the idea is so fundamental and it's wonderful that I think that has been completely reaffirmed in digital play. You know, this has been fascinating, but but I'm curious. Going back to TT Games, there are uh, a couple of things you said that really I found interesting. One was this idea that it sounded like, from your point of view, that some of the founders of Giant Interactive, which became TT Games, were former Lego employees. And it sounds like you felt like they were liberated by this sort of different context. Did that have any impact on how you did things moving forward, or did you try to address it in some way? Yeah, I learned so much from that. It hugely influenced my relationship with an individual such as Nick Varney and his creative team who runs Legoland. So from that, I learned how to think about Legoland as as a related experience, how to think about Lego in education, but certainly also about content. You know, as I mentioned, the development of the Lego movie, how we went about that relationship. And it was mind-blowing to me that it's not about individual capability, it's about the culture and the system that that individual is a part of. And so I think also the huge success of the physical brick over the past almost 20 years now is really bringing the innovation around the physical brick into the right culture that's befitting to a physical product, which, by the way, is totally different from the innovation culture and environment that's required for digital play. I think you talked a little bit about that, about how the Lego group wasn't, it it sort of sounds like, completely informed when it came to the importance of video games back when that giant interactive decision was made. Do you feel that the Lego group maybe became a little bit too reliant on TT Games in terms of its digital efforts? Yeah, that's a great question. And I I do think there was a tension there as time went by. And, you know, that's what I I mean. First of all, I think we, and I don't uh, feel sorry about the money, but we gave a lot of power to Giant and TT Games by lending them our brand. Of course, they paid a, a royalty. Right. But, you know, like when you do that, you should always take an equity stake in something as important as that because this is not like just producing a T-shirt. This is actually play material. And so just like Legoland, it's so important that you ought to own a part of it, not just to make money from it, but actually, as you say, to one, influence, two, co-invest and make things possible. And I think for all the brilliant things TT did, they did have some weaknesses, like we all do. And some of their weaknesses that emerged over time, of course, was they did not as successfully shift from console gaming to mobile gaming. So we needed perhaps another partner in that space. They were perhaps also not so successful in in general in establishing online games with a lot of players. And finally, their market reach was really mainly in the Western world. They didn't really penetrate markets that were strategically important to us, including Japan, South Korea, and China. Uh, And again, I can't blame them. This is not a criticism. It's just a fact of their footprint. So when you give somebody a global license to your brand, you need to make sure it truly is global and it can handle the technology shifts. Otherwise, you come to a point where you have to say, wait a minute, we love working with you guys, but your scope is X, Y, and C because we need somebody else to look at something else. The balance, though, is if you want somebody to invest heavily in something related to your brand, you can't say, oh, and by the way, 
we might limit your license in some significant ways. So there is that tension. Mm -hmm. And I think we got it right for quite a few years. But in the later years of the partnership, we, of course, had to open it up a bit because clearly TT possibly wasn't ready to succeed in the areas that would be, in addition, important to us. I wanted to ask you, and I know you've been listening to Bits and Bricks. Uh, We recently released an episode on the strategic product unit Darwin. And I was just curious what your thoughts were on the efforts of SBU Darwin. Yeah, you know, obviously I only know it through Cal and his personal passion. And I love, um, I hope you got that, his story of Dan DeLeon knocking on his door with a suitcase. (laughs) Yeah. And it was amazing what they did with, you know, silicon graphics and so on. So I think it, for me, it belongs into this camp where I'm thinking as a family-owned company with no other investors, I just wish something had got started there in the 1990s, which was still here today, instead of this sort of a little bit zigzagging in and out of being in gaming and digital play. Because I think we could have build something more significant from doing that. I hope we're now finally rectifying that, but that's what it reminds me of. And and of course, I think it's fascinating that uh, Kill had the foresight. And, and, you know, he was quite a skillful mm-hmm. programmer when I joined the company. Uh, you know, not only programming Mindstorms and other things. I remember uh, having dinner at his place one evening and... And he was programming algorithms for managing something on his, you know, he has he has a farm and he was doing a program of how he needed to look after the horses or something like that. And it's just, I said, yeah, I, I can't believe you're doing that. You're running the Lego group. And he said, no, no, but, you know, I'm, I just love making small programs. That's great. So, so there was something there that got started, which I think we could have gained more mileage on. I think one of the things he and I could have done very differently there, we should have built a board or a group of advisors who were fantastic people in the gaming and digital space. Hmm. Uh, You know, we had amazing people in in marketing, in product development, in global operations and supply chain who, who, you know, I was a very, very naive and young and inexperienced CEO in 2005. But I got so much help from the board. And without criticizing any individual, I just say I did not get much help on on gaming. And I think Kill should have gotten that for his own benefit 10 years earlier. He should have gone out and found people in probably in Silicon Valley or in gaming communities and had one or two of those people come on to the board with the explicit mission of digitalizing and securing the legal brand's role in gaming. There weren't any people inside management or in the board who really understood that industry. How are you going to celebrate 25 years yourself, 25 years of Lego video games? Um, I think by uh, dusting off uh, my collection and we've gotten started, uh, my kids pulled out their PlayStation 3, (laughs) uh, which had been retired a little bit and uh, we played some of the old games and and they're very... They're very sentimental about it in the way many parents are sentimental about pulling out their old their old Lego bricks. And then, not, not a small part, and no point intended other than positive appraisal, I've really enjoyed listening to the, this podcast series. Uh, it, it has opened my eyes to aspects I had never thought about, which is truly amazing, but also reminded me of things I had forgotten and told me things that uh, I had never heard. So I think it's a wonderful way to to celebrate the Lego brand's role in digital play to listen to this entire series. You know, what really sticks with me about that interview is the deep impact that video games had and have on children in terms of their exposure, not just to things like Star Wars and Indiana Jones, but to the Lego bricks themselves. Yeah, it's it's really amazing to hear Jorn V say that a child's first exposure to Lego play at some point was through video games, uh, non-physical bricks, and, and how that bit of data helped to reshape the way the company approached, well, everything. Now, while Jorn V remains the executive chairman of the Lego brand group, his interview was really focused on his tenure as CEO, which ended in 2016. So the conversation with Jorn was more about the recent history of the company, and the next interview is about the company's rich history. Yeah, and and man, is there a lot of rich history to talk about, uh, especially with this next person. 
Totally. And we're so lucky to get some time to speak with Kjeldkurt Christiansen. Despite his busy schedule, his perspective is as insightful as it is broad. And as a child, Kjeld was inspired and tested new Lego model concepts and building instructions. His picture is even on some of the original packaging for the Lego brick sets. In 1979, he became the president and CEO of the Lego Group. And under his leadership, the company introduced play themes, the minifigure, Lego.com, Mindstorms, and licensed properties. He also happens to be a big fan of technology and, much to our surprise, a coding enthusiast. Hi, Kel. Thank you so much for joining us. I'd like to start by asking a little bit about some of your earlier memories, not just working, obviously, within the Lego group, but also what some of those memories were in terms of playing with Lego toys. So what are your earliest memories of of your sort of interactions with those Lego toys and, and Lego bricks? Oh, that goes back. I have memories from back in the 50s uh, where I was just a boy. And uh, I think I built with the first bricks that, that you know, were, were without the tubes uh, already from the early 50s, being four, five, six years old. Wow. Now, do you know, growing up, I'm just curious, do you think that there were any important principles or lessons that you learned from your father, grandfather? And I'm also curious what you think that they would today think of how the Lego group has grown as a company. Well, I think uh, that it would probably be hard for them to imagine how the company looks today. My father always said, for instance, uh, it's not a question about being the biggest, it's a question about being the best. And, uh, of course, the Lego idea has been part of the company for many, many, many years. Uh, it came about really with the focus my father had on developing uh, the bricks into a play system already in uh, the late 50s. So uh, so the history goes back, and uh, I can say that I, I think I learned from both my grandfather and my father also to have a a belief in the idea, but also a certain uh, persistence to say, well, also in times where it didn't go that well, that we will definitely uh, manage uh, in the future also. Do you think when you look today at the company, how do you think some of those guiding principles are reflected in the modern Lego group? And also specifically, how do you think they impact the company's approach to digital play? For many, many years now, we have uh, really talked about playful learning or learning through play. What is so important in the Lego idea is that uh, children grow and develop when they use our products, when they build and create. So um, that has been a guiding principle and become more and more clear in our organization also, the way we talk about it, so that everybody knows that this is the fundamental principle. We are here really to to make as many children as possible learn through playing with our products. And that also goes for our digital play. It is important that that also really, that it lends itself to uh, creativity, that it lends itself to children interacting and, and, and really have a mix also with the physical play in a good way. Do you recall, I know in the 90s, there was some concern, it seemed like, uh, and some investigation into the rise of video games, in particular, mm. how the impact that companies like Nintendo were having on how children spent their time. Do you recall when you first started thinking about video games and, and sort of the perception that they were taking children away from more traditional forms of play, like construction toys? A lot of things happened up during the 90s. And, of course, it was something that we were concerned about. I must also say in the late 90s, uh, we had some problems in growing the company. And that made me also really concerned that so many people in my organization were start losing faith in that we could grow with a brick. 
And probably I did the mistake that I started too many other things. I had <laughs> we started a media product division in in London. We right. we started making watches and children's clothing, a lot of fan products. And I thought that that was really also helping us grow. But it took away probably some focus even more on uh, on our basic building bricks. So um, it was sort of a difficult period up until yes. It was really not until 2004 that we were sort of finding back to the the real uh, thing. <laughs> Do you feel that things like video games and, and sort of more technologically advanced toys were, were having an impact on that? Yes, I believe it did have an impact also on, on the way that we looked at how we should uh, move forward also in uh, integrating uh, more digital play. And uh, one extremely good example of that is, I think, Lego Mindstorms, which came out of this talking a lot internally also about how can we uh, make sure that we also have this integration between the digital play and the physical play. So we launched Lego Mindstorms in 1998, and uh, I was so happy that that we, we could do that. And so was Simon Pappard, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. it's it's funny. I I, I was actually going to ask you about him. I'm so fascinated with that relationship. Um, yeah. How did you first come to meet Seymour Pappard, and and how did that relationship with him and the MIT Media Lab sort of blossom out of that meeting? Well, I happened to see a television program called Talking Turtle, which was with Seymour Pappard talking about his idea of the logo language, which was very, very simple language, so children could easily use that also when they were dancing or whatever uh, activities they had. And and I was so fascinated by that that I thought I need to get in contact with him. And it so happened that he also, at that point in time, already was using Lego bricks. And so, so it was really from the beginning, it was in 84, we first met, and since then, we developed a close collaboration with him and Media Lab in MIT. It's interesting in talking to people over this sort of examining this 25-year history of the Lego group and video games, a lot of people mention how fascinated and interested you seem to be in technology. Where did that interest come from? Actually, uh, in 72, during my my. Uh, MBA year in Lausanne, Switzerland at IMD, we were starting uh, using, it was not a, a PC basically because it was more and more a terminal, Honeywell Bull Terminal, which was connected by a satellite to a big uh, machine in mm-hmm. Houston, Texas. Wow. So I, I started, I was so fascinated already at that point in time. So in 73, I got my own installation of, of a Honeywell Bull uh, terminal in my office uh, in Switzerland. And uh, I, I started programming a lot of things, but also things that made a lot of sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like... <laughs> like the bookkeeping in, in our holding company. I, I, I transferred that uh, to this uh, Honeywell Bull station, which I remember our auditor was not too happy with that because then, <laughs> then we couldn't have <laughs> the normal cards uh, printed out and so on. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, it was okay. But I love programming, and I love programming because I think it is so much similar to building with Lego bricks. You st- Start programming because you have an idea about what should this be like, what what do you want to achieve, and you know that it can be done. It's just a question of you finding the way. And that, to me, is so much uh, reminding me about Lego play, where you really ought to sit there and imagine what you can build, and then you start building, you change it on the way, and you get the result, and normally you are happy with the result. That's yeah that's fascinating. It's interesting because I think a lot of people today see that connection between the Lego brick and some forms of programming and we see it iterated on with Unity and with other programs. I I'm curious you have this obviously this deep understanding of technology even back in the 70s. 
How did that influence the decision then to sort of start working on the digital dimensions that you added to Lego Play? Was that sort of influential on that? Yes, uh, it was very much influential also because I followed what was happening there and uh, also that the internet got started and gaining right. momentum in the in the 90s. And uh, I was thinking that that's a fascinating possibility for our fans in all ages to share what they have created and talk to each other about developing even further. It's interesting because you look at the Lego Group's history and for a company that is probably, or at least at the time, was best known for its physical products, there were a lot of innovative steps that the company took and big bets, I think, on digital efforts. So you had Darwin, you had Futura, Mindstorm, Zowie Entertainment. Why do you think the Lego Group was was making all these big bets on digital efforts? Because it, it seemed so natural order to expand the, the idea into the digital world. And I uh, have always been very fascinated by trying out new things. So so I, I think it was a natural part of our, our development. It sounds, again, like you are really into this sort of rising technology. What are your sort of personal memories and favorite memories of some of these innovations that you've personally found interesting? Well, I'm thinking back on Lego Island, I think that was a very, very early video game that came about through right. the work of some interesting people we worked with in London, and um, it was fascinating to follow. So that's probably my first example, yeah. That's a great example, and I think it's a game that is even today fondly remembered by a lot of people who played it back when it came out. Do you think that the game had any deep impact on the company at the time when it was released? It had the impact that this is also a, a, a viable way for us to go. And many of us uh, thought that this was definitely going to be part of our future. When you look at the digital efforts that the LEGO Group has gone through, do you think it has had a significant impact on the brand and, and the company? Uh, and I guess on the LEGO brick? Yes, I think so both in terms of more of our products that have been where uh, digital play is more integrated so that you're not only building, but you're also playing on your PC or on your laptop. When you sort of look back now at all of these things that were sort of bubbling up at the same time in terms of digital efforts and innovation, is there any particular moment in time where you think that this is exactly when we decided we needed to to start pursuing digital play within the Lego group? Personally, I think it came after our work with uh, with Seymour and Mitch at uh, Media Lab, where it was really much about creating the intelligent brick to create what we called also the programmable brick, so that this was sort of this interface between the physical and the digital play. The digital gaming more came into uh, the our minds, probably in the later 90s, probably also inspired by our work with Dangdi and, and uh, Darwin. The, the Lego Star Wars video game yes. obviously uh, was a huge success, yes. not only for the developers, but the Lego group and I think also Lucasfilm. W what do you think about the game and what sort of impact do you think it had on the company outside of video games? It's a wonderful game, and it is, of course, a wonderful story. The whole Star Wars is suiting so well to our universe. And so I was very happy when we launched the products in uh, 99, I think, the first wave was. But the Star Wars video game came in some years later and was very much opening up the eyes also of, I think, also of the movie people, <laughs> seeing right. that there are possibilities really to make something fantastic that can develop the interest in Star Wars even further. Do you have any thoughts on what would be, in your mind, the milestones of those 25 years? What are the key moments of the LEGO Group's 25 years in, in video games? Well, I come back to the, the Star Wars. The Star Wars video game has definitely been opening also our eyes to what can be done. And uh, I believe that that is the biggest success we have had. So you have, obviously, you have children and grandchildren of your own today. And when you look at the way they interact with the world and the way they play, 
How do you envision the future of Lego play sort of transforming and evolving? It is so normal for the young people these days always to go walk around with their mobile and have activities looking at some uh, videos from YouTube or having different kinds of activities there. So it has really become such an important part of growing up for children of all ages. And this is something that we should also be inspired by and, and think a lot about how can we look at that and see how we can integrate that also in our idea in our world. How do you think the Lego idea and Lego play will inspire future generations? It will inspire, I hope, many future generations because it is this simple idea of being able to create whatever you can imagine, that you are really also, when you, you build, you express yourself, you learn through playing with our bricks. And so I think that that is universal and that will never disappear. But I think, of course, that there will be more ways we should see that is more and more integrated also with the, both the digital world in general, but also with, the, with games. How important do you think uh, Lego video games and digital play are to the next 25 years of the Lego group's growth and success? It is very, very important mm -hmm. to put a figure on it. I think I came up with a number of it would easily become 20% of our total turnover. That was very, uh, very bold statement at that point in time. So to put a specific figure is hard uh, because it will, as I say, be so much integrated in our, our total program. Do you recall when you kind of look back again at sort of this history of digital play, did it feel to you like it was a big bet or a dangerous path to go down to take what was a physical brick and try to expand it into digital play and, and perhaps video games? No, I didn't think of it as dangerous. I thought of it as very natural that we would take this road also. So I'm curious, you have had an opportunity, obviously, to be a part of this amazing product and the sort of philosophy of Lego play your whole life. Do you have a favorite set or a favorite memory of a play set that's come out or a video game? Or I'm just curious what your memories are of all of this. Oh, I enjoy building. I built every of our biggest sets. I <laughs> what has been the most fun. It is definitely also when when there is some functionality. I, I love building with our Lego Technic program. But uh, I recently also built the biggest Ninjago set. That <laughs> <laughs> I was about to ask you, if you still build then, it sounds oh, like? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Not every day, but very, very frequently. I always have some project underway. Is there one that you're currently working on? The one I'm currently working on is the Lego Technic uh, Volvo uh, Big Yellow. Yeah. I don't remember what we call it, but <laughs> but that's a huge <laughs> box, so that, that will take a little while. Did you happen to build the Nintendo Entertainment System, or did you oh, have oh, a yes. look at that? Oh, I, yes. I, I built the... It was so fun, and it looked so exactly like the real uh, thing. <laughs> so I had, had fun in doing that and also moving uh, Mario uh, across the screen there when turning the wheel on the side. <laughs> yeah, I, the television, I think everything about that. One of the things that I think is so fascinating with these bigger Lego uh, theme sets isn't just the amazing skill of like how the thing comes together, but that the people designing it have slipped in all these little sort of subtle Easter eggs and little hints. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, it's so much fun. Uh, that's what, in my mind, what makes it so much fun. It's like a 3D puzzle. Is yeah. there a certain element that really attracts you to building Lego sets? You're so right. It is impressive how our designers also are thinking into the building. How should they present it? How should the steps be in the building instruction? And I enjoy that so much to see also, as you say, they are put in some small tricks and uh, gadgets also along the way so that you really get a great experience. So I often have the wish to go right over to say hello to one of the designers that have created the box and say, you did very well. <laughs> I'm <laughs> I, sure that would make them very happy. <laughs> I'll do that whenever the, the possibility will, will come back. <laughs> That's great. 
I had one question for you, Kel. Yeah. I was just going to ask you, rarely have there been people who have seen the minifig come to life in 1978 as close as you have uh, with, you know, Jens Nigar right. kind of, you know, designing it. Yeah. And then seeing it come to life in a game like Fun to Build or, or Lego Island and just seeing the reality of that digital transformation. Um, what was that like for you when you saw the minifig come to life? Yeah, I remember we discussed it a lot. How much should it come to life? How should it move the legs and so on? Because <laughs> and, mm. I, and I think that that has developed over time. I, they were a little stiff to begin with, but <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but uh, uh, that's a good example of uh, somewhere where we really got inspired also to think into uh, the digital world. How should we present yeah. the program there? Yeah. Yeah, that I love how that happened. And a lot of people just talk about the magic that they experience seeing the minifig mm. come to life. And yeah. I, I think that's kind of what happened when Dandi presented the Lego movie. That was kind of the first CGI version of that. Yes, exactly. You were so right. And that was really what, what started our thinking also, that he has really so much more to do. Bjarne Tvesko, a great, great guy. He was actually hired, I think, by Jens Negard Knudsen when he was 17 to work with the Lego group. Yeah. He talks about your father and has fond memories of him getting down kind of on eye level with the kids and yeah. looking at models on eye levels um, yeah. and just being so engaged on that child level and to be able to kind of you get lost in that kind of imagination aspect yes, and, and become exactly. a kid again. Exactly. Tell me a little bit about that, and and do you feel the same? Are you constantly trying to be be on that child level? You know. Yes, I, I love being together with child who are, are absorbed by playing with our products and to see them and to talk to them also and yeah, take my part in the play also. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're such an important part. Mm. Um, I, you know, it's funny, one of the things you reminded me, Ethan, of this, but uh, one of the things that some of the early outside groups mentioned to us when they talked about working with the Lego group was this notion of being Legoized, that like they would come to the company and actually go through this process that involved going into rooms where the rooms were bigger, so they were meant to feel like children. It's so fascinating. I'm just curious, is that something you were involved in and how impactful do you think something like that was to them? Yes, I think it is important that uh, we bring back the child <laughs> in also our designers, or, or they have it already because they are all of them have been very eager Lego builders already from from early days. So they are Legoized. <laughs> That's great. And I I came to think of you mentioned Bjarne Fisco. Actually, Bjarne was also an important member of the Darwin Group later mm -hmm. on there. <laughs> Yeah. I remember him there. Bjarne was a great guy for us for many years. He sure was, and he has really fond memories. He uh, has a memory of helping you set up your Amiga for a database for your horses at your oh, house. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he has many fond memories. Um, yeah. Talk to me about the Lego core values. I just find it so fascinating that we're in this point of time where everybody and every child kind of knows, or at least a lot of children know about the Lego group and, and Lego toys. How important is that to you, this awareness, but also the type of gameplay experience these children are getting? It is for me very important that children look at it as their way of expressing themselves, be it uh, in, with the physical products or being it uh, with games. It's for them really a play experience beyond just uh, pastime. It's, it is really about how can they use their imagination and their creativity, how can they have fun while they're learning also, and, and how can they, they really have a quality time together with other children, peers, mm -hmm. or alone. So it's, uh, for me, that's very much what it's all about. It is a wonderful experience that it gives the, the child. What I think is really interesting about that is that you um, sort of have touched upon what I think has made games like Lego, Star Wars, and the other TT games so valuable. They have created a system of play in the world of video games that allow children to experience these what may be sometimes adult properties 
with not just other children, but with their parents in very meaningful ways and has sort of opened the door to a type of play that often felt like it wasn't really designed for children. Yeah, <laughs> and that's also so wonderful that we see so many adult fans with their most fantastic creations. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm so happy that we have many of them exhibited in the, in the Lego house also. We are a company also very open to new developments, and we see that in our product assortment. We see it also with the, the video games that are developed, and I think that it really is inspiring to see what is happening in the, in the digital world. Bits and Bricks is made possible by LEGO Games. Our producer is Ronnie Scherer. Your hosts are Ethan Vincent and Brian Crescente. Episode producing and editing by Ethan Vincent. Writing by Brian Crescente. Mixing and sound design by Dan Carlisle. Music by Peter Primer and Enric Lindstrand from the award-winning game LEGO Builder's Journey, which you can play on Apple Arcade today. We'd like to thank our participants, Jorn B. Nutstrup and Kelt Kirk Christiansen. We'd also like to thank the entire LEGO Games team and Anders Tankert Home for additional recording support. For questions and comments, write us at bitsandbricks at lego.com. And as always, stay tuned for more episodes of Bits and Bricks. Yeah.